In recent years, students have come under fire from the media. Our generation, critics claim, is predisposed to echo chamber thinking, closed-mindedness and so-called cancel culture. Given that our cultural diet is fed by polarising social media algorithms and clickbait headlines, this is perhaps inevitable. Yet my experience of tutorials, seminars and pitching meetings assures me that students are more capable of constructive debate than ever. So, here at Discourse, we're setting the record straight. Every month, we'll be discussing controversial, topical stories with members of the academic community, no dissing allowed. Through candid, agreeable discussion, we'll shed light on the nuances of each argument. Who knows, we might even change minds in the process. Welcome back, everyone, to Discourse by the Saint, an all-new student-led bi-weekly podcast. Here at Discourse, we promote all things discussion, covering everything from university life to national and international news stories. That being said, I want to take a moment at the start of this episode to acknowledge the heartbreaking and frankly terrifying events in Gaza and Israel, which I'm sure are at the forefront of all our minds at the moment. However, beyond a desire for peace and humanitarianism, I personally don't feel equipped to contribute any meaningful opinions to the issue. If you would like to hear discussions from people much more qualified than I am, I strongly recommend taking the time to look at Tortoise Media, either on their podcast or online. On a lighter note, though, it's Halloween, and I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better way to celebrate than by journeying into the dark side of current affairs. So without further ado, let me introduce you to my esteemed guests this week. First up, we have Christopher Morrow, Vice President of the St Andrews Econ Society and fourth-year economic student. As ever, I ask my guests to kick off the conversation with a controversial point of view. So, Christopher, what have you got for us this morning? Well, thank you very much for having me, Rosie. It's great to be on the podcast. Uh, something I get a lot of hate for is every time I go out for a meal, even at a nice restaurant, I like to order a nice glass of milk, which is usually good by <laughs> so universal <bad. laughs> disgust and criticism. But... Uh, I stand by it. Milk is full of uh, calcium and other great vitamins, so I will continue to do that. Well, as I say, we like to support discussion here, so <laughs> we'll allow that controversial opinion to pass. Uh, meanwhile, I'll introduce my other guest this morning, Hugo Sinclair, head of the notorious Shinti and fourth-year medieval history student. Hugo, what have you got for us? Well, again, thank you very much for having me on this podcast. Uh, my controversial take that I will I'll put forward is that the rule is not a pub. It is barely a sports bar at that. And that is what I will put forward. I don't think anyone disagrees with me on that, really. Well, on the issue of sports bars and establishments, it's probably apt to start with your story this week, Hugo. So, as I say, it was Halloween last week, and here at St Andrews, it's fair to say that we take our costumes pretty seriously. In that vein, I think your story is an appropriate place to start, so would you be able to take us through it? All right, so what we have here to discuss today is the fact that Cardiff University Students' Union has banned students wearing chinos and blue shirts on a night out. Now, this comes after some sort of rowdiness with a rugby society getting a bit too uh, angry in a queue. However, what it really leads to is a huge discussion on whether students should be policed on what they wear and whether sports societies inherently have issues with behaviour that really need to be addressed like this. So, first of all, the main thing I'd like to talk about, from the perspective of someone leading a sports society, is the behaviour of those within it when they get drunk and go to the union. Now, we all know that the union is a place that you know enables for the debauchery and that sort of thing, but what we end up with is certain societies that take it a bit too far. And it isn't really on, but... 
is it really the place of the union to decide that they should ban what we wear in order to avoid us being there? I mean, I'm not saying Shinty society is ever involved in these sort of issues, but we know for a fact that there are societies that do. What we really need to ask, though, is, is removing the items of clothing that these people might want to uh, bring to this uh, event actually going to stop this bad behavior? I say no. I say what, what it does is essentially allows these people to go unnoticed into these societies, uh, into these events, because they are not actually in their uniform. And it's taking apart culture of these societies as well for virtually no reason that I can see. Yeah, I definitely think it sets quite an interesting precedent, to be honest, because to mark out a designated group by what they're wearing could be seen in quite a controversial context if you link that to sort of previous, say, goth movements. If you had said that nobody wearing all black could enter the nightclub, you might get a fair bit of backlash. Um, I also think it's interesting that they seem to think that this mentality only stretches to what people wear. Um, and I think actually the the deeper sort of mob mindset stems from the society itself. It's not going to be impacted by whether you're wearing chinos and a blue shirt, ultimately. Yeah, and just on that, and the, the chinos and the blue shirt, what I find interesting is their fall from grace, an outfit that probably used to be associated with, like, the preppy fashion choices of, like, J. Crew and Ralph Lauren, you know, once sported by the wealthy of the east side, kind of the John Kennedy 1950s look, is now associated with... Wednesday night debauchery, pushing in lines, rugby players causing havoc. I feel the the humble chinos and blue shirt is a quite a fall from grace. I actually totally agree with that. I mean, personally, I wear chinos and a blue shirt quite often, especially when just out in my normal day-to-day life at a tutorial or whatever. And I feel kind of attacked by the fact that uh, the union of a different university would take what a vast majority of St. Andrew's men wear as a sign of... of poor behaviour and evilness. Yeah, I do also think the question of student unions in general is an interesting one because I noticed that the Cardiff Student Union, like our one here, is run independently from the university. And I just wonder, A, like to what extent do they actually have governing powers over the student body? But also they seem to operate under a weird set of morals where they're encouraging these sports nights that are inherently kind of groups based, almost pitching different societies against each other. And yet they're expecting people to behave perfectly in a queue, which I think it mentioned it was something like two hours long, the student union queue, which uh, arguably speaks more about the organisation of the union itself than the poor behaviour of those involved. No, I totally agree with that. I think uh, another key thing to bear in mind is that what students uh, sorry what sports unions wear when they go out to the club or whatever it is it is actually part of their identity I mean they are a team both on the pitch and off the pitch I know when I go out with Shinty I encourage every single member to wear uh, the quarters that we wear or the tie that we wear in order to just solidify the fact that we are a team and we are all friends and we we don't hold anyone um, out of that circle for any particular reason they are all part of this team. And I think it's really important that we present that to the rest of the, the wider student body as well. So they know who we are and they know what we're about, which is teamwork and friendship. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like a bit of a cop-out from Cardiff University, maybe to address some more underlying problems. I, the night is called Yolo Night at Cardiff University. You only live once and they serve discounted shots. I don't know if the nature of the event is there to encourage good behavior. And uh, it also seems like a bit of group punishment. You said this was like an isolated incident and yet everyone who owns a blue shirt and wants to work the night out, now I can't go. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a real issue, actually. I think um, there is a problem with students' unions essentially putting on nights that encourage bad behavior and then being upset with the fact that bad behavior happens. I mean, yeah, selling discounted shots is going to get people drunk, is going to get people rowdy. And also creating a huge night where hundreds of people are expected to show up and then not having an efficient queuing system also seems like a pretty big issue. And I know we have that at this union. On top of that, I think students' unions tend to take uh, issues between members quite uh, members of their own society and friends themselves quite seriously um and, and too seriously in fact i think uh what what i can read from the articles that that relate to this incident is that it was an isolated incident between rugby players in a queue it doesn't say anything about whether they harmed anyone else at all and whether they were actually harming anyone from what i can see it reminds me of an incident of a person who i witnessed in this union in, in the st andrews student union who will remain nameless who after winning a pool game decided to aggressively hug his male counterpart who had also now lost, uh, sorry, now won this pool game in a game of doubles. And upon hugging him rather aggressively, a union bouncer with absolutely no provocation and no prior warning grabbed him and threw him across a table because he was being in the slightest bit rowdy. To me, this story seems a lot like what we call the high-vis complex, where people with a modicum of power decide to take it out on people that they're either jealous of for having a good time without them or just don't like in order to sort of throw their weight about a bit in a place where they do have power yeah very interesting and i wonder where this ends what if uh, next week at cardiff university there's a few students wearing loafers that cause trouble will we then ban loafers from clubs or maybe after that if we have students that wear white shirts cause uh, some trouble will we then ban white shirts i just ask where does this end yeah, no, thank you both of you. And I definitely think it links into some really topical issues, both at this uni and more widely. So thanks, Hugo. Uh, but now from the yobs to the slobs or not, I guess we'll have to discuss and see. Christopher, I know you had some thoughts on the notorious four day week theory for us. Uh, yes, absolutely. So just to catch everyone up on this, uh, we all know the pandemic changed many things. And one of them was our attitudes towards work and employee well-being. And so something called the four-day work week has been touted as a solution for burnout and work stress. A lot of businesses and governments have uh, been experimenting with this idea. And uh, one in particular, Liberal Democrat-run local authority, Cambridgeshire Council, has been trialling such a scheme since about January of last year for its 450 work-based staff at its office in Camborne. Uh, the pilot, this involved 30-hour work week over four days and has now been expanded to include waste crews in July. Uh, The leader of this council, uh, Bridget Smith, said the initial trial saw performance generally maintained and in some cases improved. She said there was strong evidence suggested the new work pattern helped fill fill posts that were hard to recruit for and saved money by avoiding paying high staff numbers for agency. Uh, However, uh, recently, uh, the Department for Leveling Up Secretary Lee Riley said he did not approve of any trial in local government uh, that involved a four-day work week as it did not give taxpayers good value for money. Yeah, well, thank you, Christopher. I think that's a really interesting story and one that links into several really topical issues at the moment. Um, I'd like to link it into ideas about working from home, because I know that, as you say, during the pandemic, people's attitudes to work changed significantly. And lots of key figures were real advocates for working from home, Um, even on a permanent basis. Mark Zuckerberg was particularly uh, strongly in support of this. However, he's now turned around and effectively threatened to sack any people who refuse to come into the office in person. Um, And I think it just this story in general really relates to 
the sort of crisis that people are facing at the moment about what the future of work looks like and what a sustainable model of working can be post-pandemic? Yeah, I've actually got a few issues with the uh, the post-pandemic world as well uh, that might come a bit out of left field here, which is that I think this drive to have a four-day work week comes out of laziness of the population after being stuck in a position where they're oversaturated with entertainment for far too long. I think people are generally perfectly capable of working for six-day work weeks um, and and more and continuing all the way throughout. I mean, anecdotally, over the summer, I did basic training with the Royal Navy. And for six weeks, I was uh, stuck in a in a training base in HMS Rally on a mess deck doing work from 5.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night every day. And I didn't really burn out at all. I mean, yeah, there were tears and sweat, but it wasn't too bad. I think the fact uh, that I managed to do that is actually down to uh, <laughs> the idea that we didn't actually have access to any entertainment. I wasn't allowed my phone apart from for half an hour every night to call my parents. And I think that was actually really indicative of the fact that now that we are bombarded with social media constantly, we desire desperately to be uh, able to get out of our mundane work lives. Yeah, I think there's definitely truth to what you say there, Hugo. And I think that there definitely is an element of laziness on behalf of some people. But I also think it's unfair to apply that to everybody. And I also know anecdotally that the ability to work from home has opened up work as an option for people who say are working mothers and can now work from home while looking after their children, people who might have disabilities that affect their ability to work in a workplace. So while in general, I do agree with you, I think it's probably important to caveat that um, the changes to the working format have actually broadened accessibility for work and that maybe we should celebrate the fact that you know both options are now sort of viable um, but I think to link it back to the four-day week what's interesting is that people have claimed that it's really increased their productivity and increased their ability to work without burning out but I really question whether this is just going to kick off a perpetual cycle whereby in a few years down the line, you're going to look at your four days and say, oh, you know what, by Thursday, I'm feeling pretty tired. I've done quite a lot of work already that week. And actually, I'm feeling the need for an extra day. I think people definitely, you know, they'll find ways to be stressed regardless of how much they're worked. Yeah, I find it interesting that you brought work from home into the discussion, Rosie, because that's been another thorn in the side of this government kind of tackling the work culture in central government uh, versus local government. I don't know if you remember back in April 2022, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's then the Secretary of State for Brexit, Opportunities and Government Efficiency, told all civil servants to stop working from home and return to the office. I think at that time, average daily attendance for civil servants was 44% in person, and it was even lower. The Department of Education was only 25%. And uh, he highlighted the fact that we have to get good value for money for taxpayer-funded buildings and employees. And I was wondering if this differing shift in attitude towards work in the public versus private sector is kind of creating a bit of a, a very different culture in public sector jobs versus private sector jobs. So I totally see where you're coming from there. And this is another, another issue that I wanted to raise, which is we are in a, a capitalist society. And realistically, realistically, if you introduce a four-day work week in public sector jobs where you can actually you know, uh, edict that people in private sector jobs will just work for six days and outperform everyone else because that is how you outperform and earn more money. I mean, you can't just mandate that everyone has to work a four-day work week. What you're going to end up with is the companies that 
follow that sort of guidance to work a four-day work week will just underperform those who who work a a six-day work week. Yeah, well, to be fair, I think the research does kind of lay claim to the fact that people are just as productive, if not more productive, in the four days, which whether or not you agree with is a different matter. Um, But I also think it's really interesting that um, there was a very extensive pilot program of this four-day week um, in the last couple of years where 61 companies implemented it. And according to uh, the program, 92% of those companies would want to continue with that going forward, which I think is testament to the fact that this this could be seen as a viable option. I think an ethical question that it raises is whether it's fair to give a four-day week to people who work in the sort of white-collar jobs that can be adapted to this format versus, say, builders you know, care workers, hospitality workers who are just going to be worked to the ground looking after all these people who suddenly have a lot more time for leisure on their hands. Yeah, if I could just link maybe the point that Rosie's made about some people will have more leisure on their hands and also the point that Hugo made about you should be able to work hard for six straight days. From the trials that have happened, a lot of the people have reported because they have an extra day off, they don't stop working, but they work in different areas. They do community work. They spend more time with their kids doing sports. They do more volunteering. They do more gardening. Things that have a beneficial cause to society, but isn't necessarily work towards just a corporation, but perhaps work towards something that they feel is better for their well-being and mental health. I do think that's an interesting point, but I question uh, to what extent the sort of conditions of the trial affected that. I think if you knew that you were under a trial that ultimately is going to be quite beneficial to you, you get an extra day off work, it's quite likely that you're going to say that you did things that were productive with that extra day rather than just staying home and watching Netflix. I'd also say that because it was only across 61 companies, you know, your social network aren't all going to be in the same boat with you and maybe the opportunities for leisure weren't there. Whereas if this was a wider um, thing across lots of companies, um, then you might all just decide to go away for a long weekend rather than, as you say, work for a charitable organisation or do something more productive, quote unquote, with your time. So back to the comment that you made about white collar and in relation to these companies you raise, I wonder what percentage of these companies were actually, I don't know, factory workers or farmers who would actually not, I, I don't see a reason why they would benefit from a four-day work week. Um, what you end up with is essentially a discriminatory package of, of edicts that will create a society where white collar people end up being completely free to work in communities and affect community change to their own benefit, whilst people who are in the working class are still laid by the wayside, working in their factory jobs and their industry jobs, which are essential to society anyway, but they do not have the free time to actually devote to their, their, the culture around them at all. I think what you, what you end up with there is a deeply unfair society. Yes, yeah, so I think most of the major surveys did include both uh, white-collar and blue-collar work. And one of the companies that was included in the survey that I think Rosie referenced was Allcap, which is an engineering and industrial company uh, in Gloucestershire. And their managing director, a man called uh, Mark Roderick, said the nature of his industry made the four-day work week harder to implement. Uh, he said if you're professional services or you have project-based work that affords greater flexibility in meeting deadlines, this might be highly applicable. However, if you have milling machines, if you have a trade counter, if you have round-the-clock deliveries, then working from home is impossible and you need a minimum number of staff on site five days a week. Yeah, on top of that, when you work in uh, any sort of artisan or engineering industry, 
you are beholden to quotas that you have to meet and it isn't really up to you uh, whether you can take a day off. So I worked as a blacksmith for a, for a while uh, in between school and university. And in that time, you know, I had fairs which I would have to sell artisan goods at. And coming up to that, you have to make sure that you meet the quotas that you've set yourself. And it doesn't matter whether you want to take three days out a week in order to improve your mental health or your your general well-being, you have to meet that quota. And I think it's it's deeply divisive to say you should be taking this time for yourself when you really can't afford to. Yeah, I mean, I come back to the point that allegedly it doesn't actually impact um, the productivity of people and you're supposedly going to produce even more work in the, these four days rather than working in the five-day week. But I do think that it maybe raises more questions about the nature of work in general and why people are getting so burnt out. I mean, this five-day working week has been the model for generations. And why is it that suddenly people are struggling so much? Um, I would argue it comes down a lot to connectivity and the fact that people are online 24-7 and always available Often commutes have been condensed because you might be working from home uh, or you're getting a train which has Wi-Fi and therefore you're still technically in work. Um, And actually, maybe it comes down to an unsustainable working model in general rather than the need for a four day week. I just pick up on the point that you mentioned about the five day work week being the norm for generations. I think it was kind of pre about 1923 when everyone used to work a six day week, about 14 or 16 hours a day just sort of post-industrial revolution. And it was about the 1920s and 30s that was Henry Ford who sort of revolutionized the idea of a five-day week. His idea was that if his workers were less burnt out, less tired, they could be more focused, more energized at work, they'd be able to produce more cars. And that turned out to be correct. In the next 100 years, I think the whole world has sort of adopted the five-day, 40-hour work week. So I think the argument could be made that Perhaps it's just inevitable in the natural progression of things that as technology gets better, as factories get more efficient, if workers can be just as productive in four days as five, then why not just work the four days? Yeah, I think definitely, practically speaking, I can see where you're coming from. But I think it just comes back to this inherently divisive uh, nature of the scheme, because, as you say, people will have an extra day in which they're going to be going out, doing things that require a whole other load of workers to come in um and i just don't really see how it would be a fair mode of work on top of that it also simply does not work for every industry and therefore you're basically creating a society you're re-sculpting society to reflect those who can work in industries that allow them to take this time out i mean when was the last time you saw uh farmers being integrated into society in the same way office workers were in your circles. It doesn't happen because they work more and work harder and for longer hours and for longer days than people working in white-collar jobs from home. And therefore, you're going to end up, as you were saying earlier, with the community uh, involvement, you're going to end up with communities that actively discriminate against these people. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all policy. And I think two areas where perhaps would be least applicable would be health and education, two of the most important sectors. I know that coming out of the pandemic, most studies have shown that students have missed out on up to a third of teaching hours because of lost time during the pandemic. Uh, And so if teachers are only going to be teaching four days versus five, uh, students are going to be less literate, they're going to be less numerate. That's not good for society. Also on the health side, I think NHS waiting lists in England are going to be soon approaching 8 million people. If doctors and nurses are only working four days instead of five, that's just going to exacerbate that issue as well. 
Thank you, Christopher. That was really interesting. Um, And whether or not you listeners agree with the model of the four-day week, I think there probably is a level of consensus that identifies the current model of most people's work, which involves long periods of staring at screens and effectively sedentary activity, is not conducive to a particularly healthy lifestyle, particularly at university. Um, This links rather terrifyingly into a bout of new research published by Lancet Public Health this week, which found that dementia is set to affect 1.7 million people in the UK by 2040, which is some 42% higher than earlier forecasts. To give you a sense of perspective, there are currently around 900,000 people suffering from dementia in England and Wales, and it is already the biggest cause of death in these two countries. Now, unhealthy lifestyles aren't the only contributing factors at play here. The report also points to the increased risk for socially disadvantaged groups and also mentions that an increased survival rate from strokes may have impacted figures. However, they do go on to state that 40% of cases of dementia could be prevented through lifestyle choices, which include stopping smoking, losing weight and drinking less alcohol. Uh, Now, the reason I think this topic is worth talking about is firstly to link it to the nanny state and how far we should be governed by the need to protect the NHS and our care service. Uh, This is certainly at the forefront of a lot of people's minds following Sunak's fairly radical policy of banning smoking, which he announced at the party conference last month. Um, I'd also be interested, though, to hear both of your thoughts on the potential for AI to assist in this field. Trials have shown that two drugs in particular, donanabab and lecanemabab, <laughs> can slow memory decline and could prevent the could present the beginning of the end for the disease. However, they rec- rely on quick diagnosis that machine learning would argu- arguably be better placed to provide. The potential for AI in providing care for patients is also relevant here, but of course links to ethical issues. Yes, this is a very troubling story, especially because I was under the impression that we were making so many advances in uh, all sorts of uh, medical fields, including dementia and Alzheimer's. I know you referenced those two drugs. I think one was uh, done by Eli Lilly, who's the US pharmaceutical company. They showed that their treatment uh, reduced to by 35% of early stages of the disease. That was hailed as like a watershed moment. There was another Japanese farmer group, I think, that had an analysis to find 60% of patients at early stages of Alzheimer's showed a clinical improvement when they were using their drug. I think you said it was called Legambi, or perhaps I'm pronouncing that wrong. But a very upsetting story, especially if you're under the impression that we we're making so much good progress, and now it seems like perhaps things are going backwards. Yeah, I think I, I agree with it. It's kind of terrifying, this whole this whole concept. However, I think what you've said earlier really raises two key ethical issues which are kind of separate, but also link into each other. One is whether the NHS, whether our, our quest to protect the NHS, as you said, uh, outweighs our right to enjoy our own lives. And secondly, uh, how much we should allow uh, that and AI to decide how we govern our lives ourselves. And uh, I think... Where I stand on this is, what is the NHS there for if not to allow us to continue living as we want to? I mean, I'd like a good drink like everyone else, and I'm sure you do too. And we know that it causes us health risks. However, you know, we're paying taxes so that they look after us in the future when inevitably these sort of things do affect us, along with the multitude of other daily risks that we take, such as crossing the road or living in a city. On top of that, I would stand on the AI issue really firmly against it. I don't think it's it's ethical to have computers taking jobs of, of highly trained people who have worked all their lives to be able to diagnose people and help them. 
Okay, I think that's an interesting point with the AI because, as you say, people have trained for their whole lives. But equally, I'm not sure whether it's a sustainable option to continue with the model of care that we currently have. I mean, already the care system is described as broken by the majority of commentators. And as I mentioned, the numbers that we're facing now are far lower than those projected. Um, I think really it comes down to quite an uncomfortable question, which is that we have just ignored the care system and issues relating to elderly people for such a long time. I think a lot of people have so much anxiety surrounding old age that maybe they don't want to address the issue. Um, Obviously, the voting power of elderly groups is fairly limited uh, from the point of view that parties don't tend to tailor their policies towards them. Um, And I think really what we're seeing is the product of a very long standing issue that just hasn't been engaged with properly. And maybe something as radical as AI is a necessary step forward. I would have two points on the AI issue. One, I think I personally don't have any issue with AI taking jobs in the medical field. I think if an AI uh, machine can read a radiographer's chart better than a human. And I think if you had a family member who had cancer, of course, you'd want the AI to do that if it means better results, more patients being healed, uh, better cure rates. My second point would be, I think in too many industries, we kind of look at AI as something which is going to save us all. It's going to save the medical field. It's going to make work easier. It's going to allow us to work four days instead of five. I think we do have to make some tough choices. I think we do need to eat better. We need to exercise more. And I don't think we can just, you know, uh, bury our heads in the sand and say, it's okay, AI will save us. I agree with the concept that we shouldn't say AI will save us. But I also think that you're highlighting and skirting over at the same time a deep philosophical issue with AI, which is when we're looking at, for instance, the healthcare field, we're not just looking at the healthcare for the individuals who are going to the doctor. We're also looking at the general health of society. And if you're putting people out of jobs and you're removing the ability for people to go into the care uh, profession and you're also... Uh, essentially making people impersonal when it comes to their own diagnoses. You're harming the health of the society, I think, a fair sight more than you would be if you read a radiographer's chart slightly less efficiently than an AI model would. I actually think it maybe links to a different ethical issue, which is that of putting the blame on us as society for having these unhealthy lifestyles, when I would argue that maybe it's down to government policies and the actions of big companies that actually have made us uh, adopt these poor uh, decisions when it comes to, say, food and diet. It's much cheaper for people to go and consume very nutrient-poor diets. Um, It's very difficult to get out and do your 10,000 steps a day if you are tied to an office all day, as people seem to now be saying we need to be. Um, So I don't know whether it's almost invoking fear in the populace when really it should be a government issue for them to be discussing. Yeah, in terms of what should be a government issue and what shouldn't, and I think you're more previously made the point about the nanny state i think there's one really good place that the government should be a nanny state and that's in schools that's where we have teachers hired by the government to look after the kids and i think in too many canteens across the country there's deep fat fried foods like uh, fried chicken and chips being served in a canteen on a daily basis physical education is only taught one day a week instead of every day i think uh, if the government's going to be a nanny state it should be it in school to develop those good healthy habits as early as possible with the nanny state in terms of schools, I, I, I agree with you in terms of uh, physical education and food, but I don't think that it applies to everything. And I think it would be foolish to uh, give the government complete 
freedom to mess with schooling systems uh, beyond what school boards and uh, independent schools as well do themselves. But I do think that it should be mandated that kids are exercising far more than they do. I think things like you know allowing children to just spend hours watching TV or, or playing video games, the iPad generation as they're called, is really actually harming society far more than basically anything that I think has come before for children. I think in some sense, though, it's the Minister of Education's job to mess with schools. That's what they're paid to do, to change the system, to find new solutions, to find things that work, whether that's changing the menus of schools to have more local fresh produce rather than imported deep fat fried foods, whether that's rehauling the physical education system so students have to work out every single morning rather than just once a week on one afternoon. I think that actually is the job of the Board of Education to make those changes. Yeah, I would agree with you on, on those particular changes, yes. I was, I was referring more to a wider whether the government should mess with individual teachers and what they're allowed to say. Just out of interest, where do you guys stand on the smoking ban that Sunak is planning on implementing? So I was actually involved, not directly, but I attended a debate on this a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it's an interesting one. It really does actually mess with our perceptions of what society should be allowed to do. I mean, should we see smoking as just another one of those drugs that we need to ban? Or perhaps we should say, no, it's up to the individual user to decide what's good for their own bodies. And it all actually boils down to the NHS as we, we go back into this, into this sort of uh, thorny issue, which is, is it ethical to force people without their real consent to fund your lifestyle and to fix your lifestyle when it kills you? I mean, is it fair for us to fund an NHS that will look after you? And uh, one of the issues with this that people keep raising is the concept of, you know, if you suffer a disease that is directly caused by your unhealthy habits, you should have to pay for it out of pocket. Now, I think this is broadly unethical because you can never directly prove that it is because of your own unhealthy lifestyle. But it does raise an interesting issue. And I, on that particular smoking ban, I think if it's going to be banned, it's being done the correct way in this. Yeah, I think it's difficult to get lost in the argument of what philosophically and what politically would be the right decision to make. I like to take the long-term view, and if in 100 years no one smokes any cigarettes, if in 100 years' time no one has lung cancer or throat cancer, if in 100 years' time our hospitals are freed up to treat other diseases, I don't think anyone would disagree that that would be a good future. And if this policy helps us get closer than that, then I'm on board. Yeah, I think I broadly agree with you, Christopher, but I do think it's interesting that Sunak decided to target smoking when I would identify vaping as a much more pressing and immediate issue. I think it's outrageous that these brightly coloured, um, almost candy-like <laughs> flavours are able to be sold to young children um, and left uh, on pavements around the country in these plastic boxes, which obviously aren't doing anything good for our environment. Um, so I think, yes, it's definitely a good start, but I would question whether Sunak's really in touch with the issue at hand here. I would say he's very much in touch with the issue, but I do totally agree with you on vaping. Vaping is incredibly cringe, in my opinion, and really just doesn't actually help society in any way. The only chance it does help society is specifically as perhaps a diagnosed uh, method of getting people off cigarettes, which are apparently, according to the current research, more damaging. And that's not to say that vaping isn't damaging to your lungs. It certainly is. But what it does allow is for people to wean themselves off this high nicotine dose cigarette that they have originally. Uh, but I do totally agree vaping is, is horrific and should also be targeted in this ban. 
Yeah, absolutely. That was the original purpose of electronic cigarettes or vapes, as they're known, is to help people get off cigarettes to then vape and then to eventually be completely clean. Uh, but I do think there now. I think you can't walk down a high street without seeing a group of students in like high school uniforms with these multicolored vapes, these raspberry colored vapes. They smell lovely if you walk past them, but they're clearly not good for anybody's health. And the other problem is it with it is that it's completely unesthetic. I mean, at least cigarettes have this sort of slightly nice and maybe sexy looking uh, feel about them, where you know you can smoke it and feel cool. But vaping is just ridiculous. It makes you look like a complete clown. Well, thank you, both of you, for all of your thoughts. I think that was a really interesting discussion this week and one that linked together quite nicely because I think all of those stories link into the wider issue of how much control governing authorities should have over the actions and choices of individuals. Uh, so hopefully that provoked some thoughts your end. And if any of you listeners do have any thoughts, please do get in touch at our email, which is podcast at the saint dot scott. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you again in two weeks' time. You have been listening to Discourse by the Saint, an opinion-led bi-weekly podcast hosted by Rosie Miller and produced by Natalie Olofsson. All opinions expressed in this episode belong to the individual speakers and do not reflect the opinions of the Saint. If you'd like to get involved, pop us an email at podcast at saint.scot. We'd love to hear from you. You have been listening to Discourse by the Saint, an opinion-led bi-weekly podcast hosted by Rosie Miller and produced by Natalie Olofsson. All opinions expressed in this episode belong to the individual speakers and do not reflect the opinions of the Saint. If you'd like to get involved, pop us an email at podcast at the saint.scot. We'd love to hear from you.